Good morning. Good morning. I was just listening like you were to those announcements and I am just finding it amazing. When we first started talking about this young adult group, we're like, this is a group for 20-somethings and then some people were like, well, I'm not exactly 20-something, but I want to be, so we're like, well, if it's, you know, 20 and early 30s, now he's like, you know, 40, it, it's pretty soon I'm going to the young adults group, I'm telling you right now. I think there's an opening for me coming up soon. Um, it is good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, it is getting a little bit warm out there, isn't it? Yeah. So can we praise the Lord for air conditioning? Yeah. It's a good thing. Um, a lot has changed from the time that I was a teenager to the time that my kids were teenagers. Um, one of those things is has to do with driver's licenses. Uh, my kids, they didn't get their driver's license until they were about 18 because what's the point? If you, the, the laws have changed. If you're 16, you basically can get your license and you can drive to school and back, but you're not allowed to have your friends in the car. And let's be honest, that's the only reason to get your driver's license, right, when you're 16? So it's expensive. There's no car to drive. We have to insure you. So we pushed our kids back as far as we possibly could. But when I was 16, I spent my 16th birthday the same place most of you spent your 16th birthday. Where is that? DMV, right? We got our driver's license on our 16th birthday, and you can always tell the people who passed and failed, because the people who failed had miserable 16th birthdays, right? Um, and I grew up in Orange County in a, in a you know, upper middle class family. My dad owned his own business. He was in the car business, and um, so it, you know, the, we were not rich, but we were usually not hurting. And so as a result of that, it became the tradition in my family that when you turned 16 and got your driver's license, you also got a car, which was kind of cool. My sister, who's the oldest, um, when she turned 16, they said, hey, we're going to give you a car. And she cried and begged them not to give her a car. And she said, I really want a horse instead. <laughs> and so she got a horse for her 16th birthday, which it turns out is more expensive to maintain than a car. And it has fewer horsepower, too, by the way. <laughs> Couple years later, my brother turned 16. On his 16th birthday, he gets a red and white Chevy Bel Air 1955 Chevy. Sweet, right? So then 10 years goes by, because they had two kids in two years, and there was a 10-year gap. And then, oops, they had another kid. And that was my brother, Eric. When he turned 16, on his birthday, he got a 1967 Firebird Formula 400. Sweet, right? Because every 16-year-old needs to be able to do 180 on the 405 freeway. That's why. Um, so you can imagine, I'm watching this progression. I'm like, horse, 55 Chevy, uh, Formula 400 Firebird. I know that in two years, when I turn 16, I will get a Lamborghini. Right? Pretty sure. I'm at least going to get a Corvette or something like that. So I'm just counting the days. This is going to be awesome. Well, as sometimes happens, my dad's business takes a turn for the worse. And, and we're in a bad financial situation when my 16th birthday comes along. So um, on my 16th birthday, I get a card and, and, a, and a couple of bucks and a reminder that we wish we could have got you a car, but no car. So. 
I did have my license, and that was cool because I got to drive my mom's 1966 Cadillac Sedan DeVille, which was only slightly bigger than this room. <laughs> and it was awesome because it got like two miles to the gallon. It was just like perfect. Um, the good news was you could put your entire football team in it and go to practice, so there was that. Um, but about six months later, uh, a car came in as a trade-in at my dad's lot, and he's like, I, I, you know, he paid 100 bucks for it. And he said, I'm going to give Doug this for his birthday. It was a 1972 Toyota Corona. Okay? Now, now this is, <laughs> that's like the brochure picture. Mine did not look like that. Mine looked like this. Okay? <laughs> and it was rough around the edges, and it was rough in the middle, and it was rough on the top and the bottom and under the hood. It was rough everywhere. And, but I was excited. I had my own keys to my own car. They took me to the car lot. We got it out the back of the lot where it was buried under some stuff, and they pulled it out. And uh, it was a stick shift. Now, I grew up riding dirt bikes, so I knew about shifting and clutches and all that, but I had never actually been taught to drive a stick shift, and my dad just assumed I knew. So he gives me the keys of the car. He goes off to where he's going, and I get in the car. And I start doing the stick shift boogie, right? Where you kind of go back and forth, you stall it out, and all that kind of stuff. Finally get onto the road, and I'm driving. I get it up into fourth gear, and I'm doing, you know, 45 miles an hour down the road. And it's great until, um, you know, the light in front of me turned yellow. And I don't know how to downshift. <laughs> I don't know how to make this thing stop without stalling it. So I thought, you know, I could probably make the light. And so I punched it and I turned left at the light. And I'm telling you, the light was dark orange <laughs> as I went through. <laughs> and I can attest to the fact that it was dark orange because I had a comparison by the red lights that came on behind me right as I got through the intersection. I get pulled over the first day of owning this car and I get a ticket. And so it's just a wonderful day. But that car was phenomenal to me. In fact, I owned that car for a full three days before the engine seized, and I, and I had no car again. I was back to riding my bike. But I'm telling you, those three days were heaven for a 16-year-old boy, because I got a new car. Now, you may say, Doug, that car was not new. <laughs> it was new to me, right? You know what I'm talking about? It was new to me. And I tell you that because as we're in First uh, John um, this morning, we're going to be looking at John's telling us about commandments. And he's going to talk about an old commandment that has now become new. And in one sense, he says it's old. And in another sense, he says it's new. And, and I thought of my car when I thought of that because that was an old piece of junk. But to me, it was new. And so it, the, the term new has different meaning depending on what, you, what you're trying to express. So... Um, that leads to our passage. It's in 1 John chapter 2. If you haven't already found your way there, um, by now you should know we're going to be in 1 John every week. Every Sunday you show up, just have a, have a ribbon from your Bible in 1 John. It's uh, not the Gospel of John, which is at the early part of your New Testament. It's 1 John, which is toward the back. And we've been in uh, 1 John 1 and 2 the last few weeks, and um, today we're going to pick it up. In 1 John uh, chapter 2 and verse 7. So let me read you a couple of verses. Behold, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, 
which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now let's just stop there for a second. He's talking about this old commandment, or is it a new commandment? In verse 7, he says, I'm not writing a new commandment to you. It's the same old commandment that you've always had. And then in verse 8, he says, but on the other hand, it is a new commandment. And, and to understand this, we have to realize that he's going to now start really getting into the main subject of his book, which is the subject of love. And he's going to be talking about how Christians are supposed to live according to to love. And so he says, when I start talking to you about love, I'm not talking to you about something completely new. This is the same thing you've been hearing from God for all of the history of the Jewish people. But on the other hand, I am talking to you about it in a completely new way because now we have it in Christ. And, and if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know that the law of Moses, which goes back long, long, long before the time of Jesus, the law of Moses in the book of Leviticus chapter 19, in Leviticus 19, 18, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? Where most of us are familiar with it. Even if you didn't grow up studying the Bible, you've probably heard this phrase, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if you grew up Jewish, I guarantee you, you had heard this because you had to memorize the law. And you had to know that God expected you not just to love him, but to love your neighbor. So that is a very old commandment. There's nothing new about that. They've heard it all their lives. But somehow in Jesus, even what's old becomes new. Look again at verse 8. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, if you remember, he's been talking about Jesus being light. And he's telling us that we're no longer to walk in darkness, but we're to walk in light. And last week we saw him saying, not only are you to walk in light, but Jesus has raised the bar so high that he said, you need to really walk like Jesus walked. So whatever you see happening in Jesus, if you see Jesus loving people, you need to love people. If you see Jesus sacrificing for people, you need to sacrifice for people. You need to, to lift up your game, so to speak, and get it up to the level of Jesus. If you're really going to claim to be a Christian, you need to walk like Jesus walked. But just like the rest of the law, this old commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, it was hard to keep. And, and people had been failing to keep God's law for thousands of years. And Jesus came and he said, I did not come to do away with the law. I came to fulfill the law. And he came so that he could pay the price on the cross so that we would no longer have to keep fighting by works to somehow manage to... to keep the law. And so we have this law that nobody's been able to keep about loving your neighbor as yourself. But in Christ, there's a new example that has been set for us. He said he's light. And when he comes, he just pierces the darkness. The way that he lives, the way that he loves is not like anybody you've ever seen, but now you've had it demonstrated in Christ. His love is unselfish. He, his love does not seek its own. His love is always putting others first. His love is always about his sacrifice for the gain of other people. And so in Jesus, for the first time, people saw that kind of love in action. And because of the Holy Spirit working in believers, even today, it is now possible because Jesus is the light, 
for us to live that way as well. So that's the new commandment. In one sense, the command to love is like my old beat-up Toyota. It's not new. But in another sense, it's completely new because we've never seen it lived out. And now we go, we've never had the power to live this way. But in Christ, we do. And we've been talking about the signs of a true Christian. And I want to take a second, and this probably won't be the last time you hear this, as our preaching team preaches through 1 John, we're going to keep hitting on this and hitting on this because we said earlier that the, the book of 1 John is kind of like a handy-dandy lie detector kit. It, it basically says, you know, there's a lot of claims out there about Christianity, but how do you know what a real Christian is? How do you know what a real Christian looks like? And, and just because someone uses the name of Christ, does that make them a Christian? Just because someone goes to a certain church, does that make them a Christian? And so John is basically laying it out for us and going, listen, there are certain marks of true Christianity that you need to be looking for because the others are counterfeits. And the thing I want to say to you about that today and probably repeat again and again over time is this. When God gives us these pictures of, of what a real Christian looks like, he doesn't give us this truth as though it's a set of binoculars that we're supposed to take out and zoom in on somebody else and look and go, well, how real is his Christianity? It's not a set of binoculars. When God's word gives us the standards of a true Christian, it's meant to be a mirror. It's meant to be held up for us to look in and to look at our own hearts and to go, is these claim, are these claims that I'm making to be a follower of Christ actually real? Is Jesus really permeating my life? Is he really changing me from the inside out? And if not, what's going on in my life that hasn't been surrendered to Jesus? So he tells us in chapter 1 that Jesus is light. We should walk in light. He tells us at the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, he says, listen, if you're going to walk like, if you're going to walk in light, you're going to have to walk like Jesus. And today, he's going to transition into the subject of love. And he's going to say, if you're going to walk in light, you're going to have to walk like Jesus. And that means you're going to have to walk in love. A true follower of Jesus doesn't just love God. He loves people. Look at verse 9. We're in 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So he's saying you can say what you will. You can say you believe these doctrines to be true. You can recite certain creeds or verses of scripture. You can answer all the questions right. But if you say you walk in the light, but it is characteristic of your life to hate people, you're not walking in the light. And it doesn't matter how much you think you are. You've been blinded. And, and let me take a second just to kind of get off my notes here and get something off my chest. And, and you know, sometimes I think I say this kind of stuff to you guys a lot. And probably I'm preaching to the choir more than anything. But as I look at the Christian church at large uh, in our culture, it's so discouraging to realize how easy it is for those of us who have been granted light to stand in the light and look down on people who are stumbling in darkness and watch them stumbling and sit in judgment. Guys, we have to understand something. People who are blind stumble because they're blind. 
It's not something to judge them for. It's not something to look down upon them for. It's not something that separates the good people from the bad people. The truth of the matter is that if God, by his grace, has not, if he had not exposed me to the light of his word and the light of his spirit, then I would continue to be stumbling in darkness just like I was before he found me. And, and we have to remember that people who are in darkness are blinded by the darkness and therefore they're stumbling in the darkness. Let's not take these high standards that God gives us for scripture and, and that we struggle to live up to and hold other people who don't even have the light of Christ to that same standard. We should have compassion. We should have grace. We should have love. And, and as we continue to grow as Christians, that should be permeating our lives and permeating our communities more and more. When you walk with Jesus, it changes you. Always. Now, it doesn't happen all at once. But as you walk with him, you gradually grow to know him better. And as you know him better, you become more like him. You learn to trust him. You learn to put your faith in him. You learn to believe what he says and act upon him. It's a sure sign of a true Christian. Now, it's interesting because we're reading this book by John, and John sort of among the apostles goes down in history and is known as the apostle of love, right? In John's gospel, when he's talking about the apostles, when he mentions himself, he never mentions himself by name. He's very humble, right? Instead, he just calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. Maybe not so humble, <laughs> right? There's 12 of us, but there's one that he really loved. I'm not going to mention any names, right? So that's what he calls himself. He, he identifies himself with love, and then almost everything he writes is just permeated with teaching about love. That's why we're calling this study of 1 John Summer of Love. As we go through this summer together in the book of 1 John, we're going to be hearing themes of love over and over and over again. So John goes down in history as the apostle of love, and we sort of see him as like a hippie apostle right? Just peace and love and kindness and gentleness and all that kind of stuff. That's how we think of John. Um, but did you know it wasn't always like that? It's very interesting to read the gospel accounts, especially if you read the other gospel writers, what they have to say about John. It's pretty interesting. In Luke chapter 9, for instance, um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9. Um, it's uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book of your New Testament. And, and as you're going to Luke 9, let me set the stage for you. Basically, um, I've told you before that, generally speaking, you have, um, you have Jerusalem and Judea on one side, and you have Galilee on the other side, and in between is Samaria, right? And Samaria is where the bad people live. So we don't want anything to do with those people. That's a neighborhood we don't go to, right? So good Jews won't even set foot in Samaria. They go all the way around. It takes them twice as long to get from one end to the other because they're unwilling to cut through Samaria where they might actually bump into some Samaritans. Okay? They hate Samaritans. And as a result, Samaritans hate them. But Jesus breaks the rules. Jesus always tends to go through Samaria instead of around it. Why does he go through Samaria? Because he came to be the light of the world. He came to bring light where there was darkness. He came to being to bring grace where it was needed. And it was needed in Samaria. So again, we're going to see them traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem. And that's what's happening in chapter 9. 
And as they're going along, the disciples do what the disciples often did. And we see it again and again and again in the Gospels. As they're going along, just having their conversation as they're walking, they're talking about their favorite subject, which is, which one of us is the greatest? And they're having the same argument they've had a bunch of times, and they're going, I'm greater than you. No, I'm greater. Jesus likes me better. Well, Jesus chose me first before he even ever knew you. Well, yeah, but when he goes on special trips, he takes me. When was the last time he took you, right? And they have these conversations. It's like two little kids arguing about which one mom loves the most. And, and their argument is always, who's the greatest? And Jesus always overhears, and he always stops him, and he always says the same thing. I tell you again, the greatest among you shall be the, the least. The greatest among you shall be the servant of all. And it always shuts him up, but it never stops the argument. Right? And, and so John hears this answer after they're having this argument again. And apparently he doesn't like the answer because uh, he changes the subject rather abruptly. So we see it in verse 49. We're in Luke chapter uh, 8. Uh, where are we? Luke uh, chapter 9. We're in Luke chapter 9 right now, and we see it in verse 49. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. So they're having the conversation, who's the greatest, who's the greatest. Basically, Jesus says, Don't make me pull this car over, right? Stops the conversation, says you're supposed to, it's about who's the least. And John goes, well, let's talk about this then. I, you know, since you won't let me tell you that I'm the greatest, let me show you how great I am. He says, I, we were going along, you weren't with us this one day, and I saw this guy. There was a demon-possessed guy, and I was just getting ready to go over there and deal with that demon. And this guy walks up, and in the name of Jesus, casts a demon out of this guy, and the demon leaves him. He goes, but don't worry, Jesus. I told him to knock it off. <laughs> I said, you're not in our club. And only the people in our club get to take authority over demons. And Jesus goes, dude, you have no idea who's in the club. That's a paraphrase. <laughs> he goes, you don't worry. A demon being cast out is a good thing. So, so stop making everything about you, right? So... Now John comes off not so well. And then the story continues. If we pick it up in verse 51, it says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. Okay? So this is simple. He's going to be going, and instead of going around, he's going to go through Samaria, and he's going to need a place to stay one night. So he sends some messengers ahead, and we find out later that the messengers are John and his brother James. He sends them ahead and says, find us a place to stay, rent us some rooms, and let them know we're coming. So those guys go ahead, and they get in the middle of Samaria, and they go into this inn, apparently, and they say, hey, we want to make arrangements because our rabbi is coming through, and he's going to need a place to stay while we're on our way to Jerusalem. Well, the guy is not happy about that. Listen to what he says. Verse 53. Um, but they did not receive him because he was traveling toward, toward Jerusalem. So they said, you know, in this town, anybody who's on his way to Jerusalem is not welcome here. 
That, that same way that you Jews feel about us, guess what? We feel the same way about you. So you're lucky we even let you pass through here. But we're certainly not letting you under our roof and we're not feeding you our food. Okay? If you're going to go to Jerusalem, go to Jerusalem. Verse 54. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Well, that's loving. Verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Man, James and John are take-no-prisoners kind of guys. Like, sorry, we don't have any room for you in our hotel. Well, guess what? We're going to burn your hotel to the ground. And we could do it, too, because we know God. Wow. Right? That's love. That's compassion. That's consideration. These guys are tough guys, James and John. In fact, as far as we know, they're the only ones among the disciples who have a nickname. James and John, these brothers, they have a nickname. Anybody know what their nickname is? Sons of Thunder. These guys are in the Sons of Thunder, right? What that means is like their chariots have those loud pipes on the side and you can hear them when they're coming, right? They got the leather jacket with the patch and all the deal. They are the Sons of Thunder. How do you get a name like that? Of all the nicknames, I guarantee you, these guys are not known for their love. <laughs> these are tough guys. Now, Loving on people did not seem to be a very big priority for John. But here's the truth. Walking with Jesus changes a person. So listen, especially if you think of yourself as kind of a big, tough, hard-shelled guy, listen closely. Loving people is not a sign of weakness. Loving people is a sign of greatness. And we've got to get this through our heads. Caring more about others than you care about yourself makes you look like Jesus. That's what it means to walk as Jesus walked. His disciples in the early days were always trying to push hurting people away. You see it over and over again. And Jesus was going from Galilee to such and such a place, and along the side of the road there was a leper, and he was crying out, Lord, have mercy on me. And his disciples went over and told him to shut up. It happens again and again. There was a blind guy crying out, Lord, heal me, Lord, heal me. And his disciples went over and said, don't bother the teacher. There, he was sitting and talking with some people and some children ran up to him and they just want to sit at his feet and listen to him. And the, the disciples came along and said, you get these kids out of here. Kids are noisy and they're, they make a mess and they're getting in the way. And Jesus took the kids and he put them on his lap and he looked at his disciples and he said, don't you ever keep a child from coming to me. If you ever keep a child from coming to me, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be thrown into the sea. I will wipe you out if you keep a child from coming to me. See, Jesus' whole attitude toward disenfranchised and weak and hurting and struggling people was so different than we see in so many religious people today. The disciples were like a lot of religious people today. Hey, let's just keep our distance from those dirty folks. 
Jesus goes, you guys don't get it. I came for the dirty folks. It's not the well person that needs a physician. It's the sick person. I came for them. And so his disciples are always putting people off. But, you know, there's this great verse, and, and you guys probably all know John 3.16, but, but I love John 3.17, where it says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Let's not forget why he came. So the mark of a Christian is not condemning others, it's loving them. Now, as we talk about this, and we talk about this sort of vulnerable, sacrificial, uh, you know, others-centered love, it's natural for some of us to go, you know what? I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Because I've been burned. You know, I put myself out there and I got my heart stomped on. You know, I reached out to a guy who was hurting once, and you know what he did? Stole from me. You know, I trusted my parents. You know what they did? Abused me. So don't talk to me about sacrificial love. Don't talk to me about how we ought to be about vulnerability and laying our lives down and serving other people because I have some scar tissues that will prove that if you do that, you're going to get hurt. And guys, I wish I could stand here and I could explain to you why you're wrong. The problem is you're not wrong. I'll bet you every one of us in this room has got some scar tissue on our heart because we love somebody and they hurt us. Some of us have been abused. Some of us have been divorced. Some of us have been cast aside. Some of us have been bullied. Some of us have been ridiculed. But we have all been through some stuff and we all know what it's like to have scars on our hearts. And some preacher stands up and says, hey guys, come on, let's make it all about love. And you go, listen, I've learned through the school of hard knocks, I gotta keep people at a distance. I gotta protect my heart. Let me just say this about that. The better you know Jesus, the more willing you are to trust God to take care of you. Walking with Jesus changes people. The longer you walk with him, the more you trust him, the more he will show himself strong. And guys, there's a million great intellectual arguments for the reason for our faith. And we should never have to worry about, do we have this unreasonable faith that, that cannot be supported intellectually? I've had all kinds of debates with people talking about the nature of creation and evolution and talking about the historicity of the Bible and whether or not it's trustworthy and all of that kind of stuff. Those are all legitimate conversations. But when it comes right down to it, in the end, if you ask me why I'm so sure about Jesus, it's not for any of those reasons. It's because I've known him for 40 years. I know him not just know about him. I've watched him. I've seen his faithfulness. I've cried out when there was no possible answer, and he gave me the answer. I have been healed by him. I have been encouraged by him. I have been taught by him. I've been given peace by him in the midst of circumstances where there can't be peace. And over all those years, you walk with him long enough, and you know him. And the better that you know him, the more you're willing to trust him to take care of you. And so guys, if your heart's been hurt, 
Just walk with Jesus. He'll show you. You can trust him to take care of you. And let me add something to that. You'll also learn that you can trust him to take care of the people who hurt you. Guys, we don't have to worry about getting even. We don't have to worry about vengeance and punishment and justice and all that kind of stuff. Jesus says, you know what? Why don't you let me take care of that? You know, I, I love the example of the Apostle Paul. We can see this in 2 Timothy. Turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy, also New Testament. It's not so far from 1 John, just a few books to the left. In 2 Timothy chapter 4. Now, let me just tell you while you're turning there, if you don't already know, Paul is the author of um, 2 Timothy, and he's writing this letter to a guy named Timothy, who is his protege and who is a pastor. And, and Timothy is pastoring the church at Ephesus, and Paul is writing back to him, and he's always trying to encourage him because Timothy is a young man, and he's been through a lot, and he doesn't do so well with trials, and Paul is always trying to encourage him to, to you know, keep the faith. And so he writes this whole letter to him, and he gets to the end, and as, as he does in many of his letters, Paul uses the last several verses for just personal matters, like, hey, don't forget to say hello to so-and-so, or I'm sending greetings from this person, or don't forget to bring this when you see me next, and those kinds of things. And that's what he's doing at the end of chapter 4 in 2 Timothy. And so it would be easy for us to just go, oh, these are just the personal matters. I'll just skim through it and be done when we're reading it. But if we do that, we're going to miss something. Because right in the middle of all these things, hey, bring my coat, and hey, pick up Mark, and hey, bring me the parchments, and all that kind of stuff. Here's what he says in verse 14, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against him. So Paul is just telling Timothy, hey, listen, I've been through some hard times, and some of those hard times came from this guy, Alexander. He still lives in your city. And he said, I, I want you to be careful of Alexander. I want you to, to keep an eye on him. Because you turn your back on him, he might hurt you. But, but look what he says about him. He says, he did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He doesn't say, he did me much harm, so you let him know I'm coming. And it's, it's, duels at, it's pistols at dawn. He doesn't say that. He says, you know, so I, I've just asked the Lord to take care of that. And he goes on and he goes, oh, and by the way, um, I recently had a trial. I was brought before a magistrate for my faith and, and they could have imprisoned me and they could beat me and they could even put me to death and, and when I went to this trial what happened is all the people who were my associates they ran like scared children and there was nobody there to support me just like, just like Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and the guys come with the clubs and the disciples run off in every direction because I experienced that the guys I trusted, they deserted me in my hour of need. But look what he says in verse 16. May it not be counted against them. He's asking God to forgive them. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Hanging on the cross, the very people that have scourged him and spat upon him or mocking him. And Jesus' response is to pray for them. Father, forgive them. Paul's doing the same thing. Because the more you know Jesus, the more you know God, the more you can trust Him. Not just to take care of you, 
but to take care of the other people who have hurt you as well. Guys, we don't need to be afraid to love people. God's got our back. And, and you know, people are notorious for letting each other down. But God always stands by us. God is always faithful. He always gives us strength. He always delivers us. So those who hold grudges don't really understand God's forgiveness. Take your Bibles and go to Colossians chapter 3. If you're there in 2 Timothy, it's just, again, 5, 6, 10 pages to the left. Go to Colossians chapter 3. And in Colossians 3, again, Paul's writing. And in Colossians 3.12, here's what he says. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. What is the mark of a chosen one? What, what is the sign of a person who's beloved of God? It's this heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. It's this willingness to forgive people who have hurt you. Guys, one of Satan's most effective strategies is to take our hurt and turn it into bitterness. And he does it all the time. And, and he takes what was initially a hurt, which is bad enough, and then we stew on it and stew on it and stew on it until it just takes root in our hearts and becomes this root of bitterness that bears all kinds of terrible fruit. And, and we argue for our right to be bitter. And we say all the time, I have every right to be angry. Do you know what he did to me? I have every right to not forgive him. Look what he's done to me. But let's get practical for a second. When did you ever benefit from being bitter? <laughs> How did it ever help you? I have fantastic news, guys. I mean, this is really fantastic news. Every one of us can relate to this somehow because we've all been hurt. I have fantastic news. Forgiveness is not a feeling, it's a choice. You get to forgive. You are not stuck in a cave where you go, I cannot forgive. That's a lie from the devil. By God's grace, you can forgive. You don't have to keep walking in pain. You don't have to keep walking in fear. You don't have to keep walking in the anger and frustration that comes with the bitterness that takes root in our hearts when we let it. Jesus came. This is so important. Jesus came to set us free from sin. That means the sin that I commit and the sin that was committed against me. He came to set me free from that. Don't let Satan lock you up in a cage of bitterness. Just think practically about the effects of bitterness, right? So think, every situation where somebody gets hurt, there's, if I get hurt, then there's me in the situation, and then there's the person who hurt me, and then there's the people that I love who are impacted by my life, right? And, and so let's just think about this. What is the impact of bitterness on me? What does it do to me? Well, first of all, it steals my joy. So all of us have known somebody who's perpetually bitter, right? They're just people who, 
who get up in the morning, the alarm goes off, and they grumble and get out of bed and kick the dog and put a scowl in their face, and they are ready to face the day. And you think, wow, what a wonderful way to live, right? Bitterness affects me negatively physically, emotionally, and spiritually. It it puts a wall up between me and God. It puts a wall up between me and God's people. It puts me into a depression and a place of darkness. It, It causes things like headaches and hypertension and ulcers and loss of sleep and goes on and on and on. That's the effect of bitterness on me. I have a right to be bitter. What's the effect on the people that I love? Well, it's sure wonderful for them, isn't it? Everything that affects me affects the people closest to me. And it keeps me from loving them well. If I'm so angry that I got hurt last time, I'm not going to open up next time. And so I put up a wall between me and the people who should be closest to me. I put up a wall between me and my spouse, me and my children, me and my parents, me and my brothers and sisters in Christ. I put up walls and I say, you can come this far but no further. And I miss out on the blessings of having those relationships be alive and well. And those people miss out on the blessings that could come from it also. Then the third person in this scenario is that idiot who hurt me to begin with. That jerk who just stomped all over my heart and left me bleeding, right? What is the effect of my bitterness on that idiot? Absolutely nothing. He does not care. He is not concerned. In fact, most of the people that we're bitter at haven't thought about us in months, maybe years. They couldn't care less. They're not sitting there going, oh gosh, I hope Doug's not still mad. No, they don't care. They might pass me in a hallway and not even recognize my face. I recognize theirs because I go to sleep with it burned in my head every night. Right? So it hurts me. It hurts the people I care the most about, and it doesn't do anything to the person that I wish would get punished. How about if I was to just do what Paul did and say, Lord, please take care of that in your way. I'm not going to worry about it. Forgiveness is such an incredible thing. You say, no, you're not going to talk me out of this. I have been hurt, and I am not letting him off the hook that easy. Well, the person you're not letting off the hook is you and the people you love the most. And when you're convinced that the other person doesn't deserve to be forgiven, that's when you have to remember what Jesus has done for you. Did any of us deserve his forgiveness? Remember the story Jesus told about this? He, he told a story about this man who had, had borrowed like millions of dollars from his boss and then he invested it and it all fell in the toilet and he didn't have it to pay back and there's no way for him to get it to pay back. And the boss came to him and said, hey, you're way past due. And he sort of fell on his knees and said, I'm so sorry. If you'll just give me time, I'll try. I don't know where I'm going to get this money. And the boss looked at him with compassion and he said, listen, I've got my, I've got my ledger book here. I'll tell you what, I'm just going to cross out your debt. Don't worry about it. And the guy said, oh, thank you. And he got up and left, and as he was going out, he ran into another, for, another employee, and that other employee had borrowed 10 bucks from him last week. And he goes, hey, where's my 10 bucks? And the guy said, I'm sorry, I don't have it. Maybe next paycheck I'll, I'll, I'll have it. And the guy said, no, 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 dude, that's not how it works. You said you would give it back to me. I'm going to throw you in prison until you pay it back, every cent. 
And of course, the boss heard about it. He went and found the guy, and he held him accountable. That story is meant to remind us that what we have to forgive is, by comparison, very small. And what God has already forgiven in us is very, very large. And what kind of a person do I have to be to willingly accept his forgiveness and be unwilling to pass on such a small amount of forgiveness to somebody else? When we who have been forgiven so much refuse to forgive those who have hurt us, we're spitting in the face of God. Bitterness, my friends, is a terrible master. Let go of it. If you love people, people will sometimes take advantage of you. If you love people, they will sometimes hurt you. If you love people, they will sometimes desert you. Love anyway. If you don't, you're going to be missing out on the point of your life. There's a, there are three things that, that I believe so strongly in that we make sure that you have to face them every time you come in this room, on this wall, over my shoulder. Loving God, loving people, changing the world. We change the banners, we change the slides, we change the sermon topics, we change everything, but that always stays the same. We want us all to come in and remember, you have a purpose in life. God put you here to love God, to love people, and so he could use you to change the world. And that's what life's about. And you know what? There's no way to change the world for the better without loving people. And if you love God, you will love people because he loves through you. So you want to hold that mirror up? You want to look at yourself and say, how am I doing in my walk with Jesus? Ask yourself this question. How am I doing at loving people? Not, let's not forget, loving people changes the world. It does. Now, I was in China several years ago, and um, at the time that I was there, and it, it's been maybe 15 years now since I was there, and, and at the time that I was there, the estimates that were given to me by the Chinese Christians was that they thought at that time there was maybe as many as 100 million born-again Christians in China. Now, there are no official counts because it's illegal to be a Christian in China, right? But the underground church is just exploding and mushrooming and amazing things are happening as this church is growing, as people are seeing what Jesus can offer and comparing that to what the state has to offer and going, this is a no-brainer. People are coming to Christ. Now, nobody knows the official numbers because you don't have any official counts, but the estimate now is that there may be 150 to 200 million Christians in China. That's more than there are here. And the church is just exploding there. I said, wow, how did this start? Well, there was this English guy by the name of J. Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor had a heart for the people of China. And missionaries had made it to the outskirts, the edges of China. But he, he said there's so many millions and millions of people inland. He went inland. And he brought the gospel. And he would preach and he learned the language and he would serve the people and he did everything that he could and he lived among them for years, year after year after year, serving the people, serving the people, preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel, and after all of that, not a single convert. Not one. Still, he was the only Christian in the interior of China. 
and he went home on a furlough. He wasn't sure if it was a furlough or if he was quitting. But while he was home in England, the Lord did business with his heart and showed him that he needed to love the Chinese people in the way that Jesus loves people. And that meant he would have to become one of them. And so Hudson Taylor decided he was going to go back to China. And this is his famous quote. He said, let us in everything not sinful become like the Chinese that by all means we may save some. A shortened version of it is he said, in all ways not sinful I will become Chinese. And you see the picture of him. He's dressed like a Chinese man of his day. He grew out his beard the way the Chinese men did cut his hair the way the Chinese men did, wore the clothing of a Chinese man, learned their dialect from the inland of, it, of the um, nation instead of the more commonly spoken dialect. And he just laid down his life with them and he served them. And one by one they came to know Jesus and it began to spread. Now, fast forward several decades and along comes communism. Christianity is made illegal. Christian leaders are all snuffed out and put to death and put in prison. And the church grows faster and faster and faster and faster to where almost every expert agrees that if it's not already the most Christianized nation in the world, it will be by the end of this generation. Because Hudson Taylor loved God and loved people. The world changed had a conversation just this morning telephone call from Edie Miskell you know Edie from Raining Hope and uh, and you know at Raining Hope amazing things have been happening when we got involved with Raining Hope uh, it was because Edie had gone over to Uganda and she saw the situation of some kids and the Lord pierced her heart and she began to love these kids and she said I'm gonna go back and do something about it and so she started Raining Hope which is at the time a children's home group of children, we're going to care for them, send them to school. You know, there, there's a lot of these children's homes all over Africa. But Raining Hope's different. And what they decided is that instead of trying to go wide and touch every life they could a little bit, they decided to touch a few lives very deeply. And so they took on this philosophy of deep and not wide. And and they decided to build into about 30, 35 kids and to just raise them up to adulthood and to give them a passion for Jesus and to love them and show them by example what it is to love others. And so last week, Raining Hope, you know, almost all those kids are teenagers now. And they've become ministers. Last week what they did was they had an afternoon and they sent them out two by two into the community around their house. Remember when we were raising money for a house? That house is like a beacon of light in Uganda now. They sent them out two by two, teenagers, knocking on doors, preaching the gospel. And in an afternoon, 33 of their neighbors came to know Christ. And they invited them to a special service this Sunday, which is about, they're 10 hours behind us, so they're probably going to bed now. And, and we just got the report that they had over 200 people in the worship service in that house, in the courtyard, just 12 hours ago. People hearing the gospel, lives getting changed. Because when you love God, you love people. When you love people, it changes the world. One last example. 
just because I love this guy, Tim Tebow. You know, he, he had this plan to be a great athlete, and somehow, as great an athlete as he is, the NFL will not pay him to play quarterback. So he's now trying his hand in baseball, but really, um, that's not what he does. What he does is loves people. And, and so he started a foundation. When they drafted him to the NFL, they said, here's a few million dollars, and then he was rich. And he's like, Lord, what would you have me do with this? Start a foundation. Okay, so he starts the Tim Thibault Foundation, and one of the many things they do is this thing that they, they have a prom that is for special needs kids. And it happens every February right around um, uh, Valentine's Day. And, and they have this prom, and it happens in countries all around the world on the same day, right? And so as you can imagine, he gets letters from all these girls asking him to be their dates for the prom, right? And so he always says yes to three or four of them because he can do it in a region. He can go to this prom for a little while and then go over to this one and so forth, and he'll say yes to two or three or four of them, but obviously he has to say no to a hundred of them. And so just this past week, I think, he was on the Jimmy Fallon show, and they were asking about his foundation. He was telling them about this. And uh, he said, yeah, you know, they, a lot of these uh, kids asked me to be their date for the prom, and I can't do it with everybody. But I found out that one of them lives here near the studio, so I invited her and her mom to come to the show. And they introduced her, and they put the camera on her, and everybody clapped for her. And then he pulled out a um, corsage, and he had her come down on the stage and he put the corsage on her and he danced with her on national television. Now, I know you ladies are like, oh, <laughs> right? But some of you may be thinking, okay, but really, it's just a dance. Not to her. <coughs> Not to her. You have been put in a position to touch And it doesn't matter if you're Hudson Taylor, Tim Tebow, Edie Miskell, or you. There are people around you who need the light of Jesus. How are you doing at loving them? Let me just ask you this. We've heard about all these great people. What about you? How does God want to use you to love people in Jesus' name? Whose world could you change by just a little bit of effort on your part, and it would make all the difference in the world. Is there a kid at school that nobody likes and you could go and be their friend? You know what a difference it makes? You know those popular kids that everybody likes? They don't need another friend. The ones that nobody talks to at lunch, they need a friend desperately. If you go and be a friend to somebody like that, you could change their life. Somebody at work going through a hard time and they just need a shoulder to cry on, Maybe you could be that person. Maybe a neighbor who's just gone through a loss. Guys, God has sprinkled us around this earth as salt. And he has lit lights in us. Put us around the earth to be light in this world. Loving others is a sure sign of being a child of God. When you look in the mirror of God's word, is that what you see? If not, remember, today is the first day of the rest of your life. It can change starting right now. I wonder whose life 
God wants to touch through you. Let's stand together and we'll pray.